Uh, this morning's passage, um, I realised hearing uh, Ali actually do the reading, I thought this is, she's got such a lovely reading voice. Uh, you hear this sweet voice talking about the accusations and judgment brought against Israel, and it doesn't quite have the impact in some ways. Um, that's, that's no judgment against your voice, Ali, at all. Um, but in some ways, what I have here to say even this morning, none of it's really going to sink in. Uh, it's all going to be water off of a duck's back, not even if it's my voice um, or anyone in this church's, but only if it is the Lord's voice that we hear. Uh, and that's what we pray this morning. So let's, let's close our eyes and pray that the Lord would speak to us. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, eager to hear your word. I pray eager to hear your word. And Father, to hear from uh, this chapter in 1 Samuel, Lord of Samuel's farewell uh, as a leader to these people, what are his final words? And Lord, we pray that we would be able to hear them. Lord, that this wouldn't just be water that runs off of us, a word that, yeah, there's some understanding to our minds, but no understanding to our hearts. This morning as we listen about you, as we hear about you, Lord, we pray that you would reveal some of your glory to us. Heavenly Father, that, uh, that our eyes might be opened, that you give us ears to be able to hear your voice in your word. Lord, and to have our eyes fixed on you and what you have done. Yeah, I pray this, Lord, uh, for all of us in your name and for your glory. Amen. So here we have it. Saul has been anointed king over Israel, and after their great victory over the Ammonites, they're going to make it official. They have cor- they're coronated and have just coronated Saul as king of Israel at Gilgal. And as would be expected, they are celebrating. Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And it's in this setting, perhaps on the same night or the next day, that Samuel speaks these words that we find in chapter 12. Now these aren't ordinary words from Samuel this chapter has a special weight to it these are Samuel's final words as the leader of Israel to the people as they move from a theocracy a nation led by priests to a monarchy now led by a king Samuel's role as a leader of this nation comes to a close Unique to his predecessors, Samuel doesn't see his role out unto death, but is ushered out by the people in preference for another system. And so like Moses, with the book of Deuteronomy, Samuel gives one last speech before handing leadership entirely over to this new king, Saul. I wonder, in Samuel's place, what would your last words be? To Israel? Would you follow Moses' example in Deuteronomy and recite the entire law in application? 
I think it took him a few days. Or would you keep it short and cool? Like the yearbook quotes that we all had to do in high school. Now, I knew this one kid, not me, but a friend of a friend of a friend of mine, who wrote, I don't rely on miracles, I depend on them. The perfect quote for a student that doesn't study for his exams. That kid was cool. Not me. So what would you say to Israel? Would you praise the new king in this, point, in this moment? Would you be grumpy and whinge because you were kind of just fired? Would you say nothing and just fade into history? Well, Samuel here gives one of the boldest speeches that we can read. As we go through what he says, we will see that with one hand he offers the best instruction that he possibly can for the new and successful kingdom to make it successful that anyone could have offered. And at the other, in the other hand, he grabs the new king and all the men of Israel by the ear and he puts them in their places lest they get too big for their shoes. And at the end, surprisingly, he kind of does a bit of a mic drop and ends his speech. It is a speech that holds profound truths for all to read and profound blessings for all that follow it. So how does this speech go? Samuel starts by saying, I am old and grey and my sons are amongst you. Now these two things, his age and his sons, were two contributing factors as to why Israel sought a king like the other nations. Samuel didn't have much pep left in his step. And his sons were, quite frankly, just rubbish. At the first mention of a king in chapter 8, when the elders come uh, of Israel come and approach Samuel, they say, look, you are old. Israel has a way with words. And your sons, they don't walk in your ways. Now make a king for us to judge us like other nations. And the elders at that time, they had a point. Where is the future of this kingdom going to go when you die, Samuel? We've just finished with all the difficulties your predecessor Eli and his rubbish sons created. And we don't want to go through that again. Now, in this final speech, Samuel brings up these two points again to ask the very same question that they inferred. Where is the hope of this future kingdom? It's not in me, I'm going to die. It's not in my sons, because, well, at least their mother loves them. Where is your hope going to come from, Israel? Where does it rest? Samuel then asks a series of questions of the people that at first glance may appear like an old man that has been caught up in self-doubt of his time as a leader and is looking for some validation. He asks that they examine his time as their leader to find fault. Have I taken people's oxes or donkeys? 
Have I cheated anyone? Have I oppressed anyone? Have I accepted bribes to turn a blind eye? And what do they say to all of this? They swear witness before the new king and God that Samuel did not cheat them, oppress them, or take anything that was not his to take. That he was, in fact, a good leader. But Samuel doesn't stop there. It's not his point, but he presses on. You know who else were good leaders? Moses and Aaron. Do you remember them? The Lord raised them up and they brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now Samuel starts to get on a roll because without pause he says, stand still, don't move, listen more to the recounting of the Lord's righteous actions towards you. I'm going to reason with you concerning all of his actions and Samuel does. He recounts the cry of the people in Egypt, the sending of Moses and Aaron and their rescue to the land of Canaan. A simple recounting of salvation and blessing at the hands of the Lord. It shows how God answers the cry of his soon-to-be people and he does it even as we saw in last week's message by sending leaders, in this case Moses and Aaron, to rescue, to lead and to guide. But Samuel makes it clear that it was indeed God that did the hearing, the sending and the blessing. Then Samuel says, they forgot God. The very sentence in the passage sounds defeated and well it should be because here Samuel abandons just a linear story through history going from one point to the other and starts rattling off rapid fire lists of times where they have forgotten the Lord. Three times he mentions quickly where they had abandoned him, forsaken God. Again and again and again they forget him. And in response, each time the Lord places them in difficult situations. Surrounded by enemies, being oppressed, stolen and killed. And he leaves them in those places, surrounded by those enemies, until at last they cry out again. Now Samuel changes his pace, he slows down. In his recounting of what is then cried out in that space of trouble. He slows from multiple rapid fire examples to just one. When things got too tough for Israel, they cried out for help and repented, saying, We have sinned. Because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroths. Now deliver us from the hands of, of our enemies and we will serve you. Why does Samuel slow down here? Why not continue with the rapid fire? Because this is the very same cry that happens every time. It is always the same. Every time they forget him is a time where they have replaced him with an idol. They would have cried out dozens, hundreds, thousands of times to their idols for this same help, but nothing came. 
There is no help from them. They don't exist. But only when they cry out to the Lord does the story change. Samuel speeds up again, now this time with four examples. But now of the Lord's response to the cries of Israel. And what is that response? He sends mercy and salvation in the hands of the people that he sends. Jerubal, Bendon, Jephthah and even Samuel are examples of this salvation the Lord has sent. Now what are we to gather from this reasoning of Samuel to the new king and the men of Israel at this time of celebration? As I thought on this recounting of Samuel's, it is easy to be swept up in the number of observations that we can make of how God operates with his people. The way that he saves using men like Moses and Aaron and the judges. His response even to unrepented sin or perhaps his response to repented sin. But surrounding and covering And underlying all of these smaller observations is one crucial point, and it is Samuel's point. And he says it in verse 12. When you saw the king Nahash of the Ammonites come against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, though the Lord your God was your king. Did you hear that crucial point? The Lord your God was your king. The first half of Samuel's speech is dedicated to making this singular point. Samuel wasn't asking for validation because he doubted his skills as a leader or what he had done and needed a pump up before he left. He was showing them the type of leader that the Lord provides to his people. He recounted their history to show the consistent, never-ending presence of the Lord in their lives. And his constant, his constant working of grace to them. He answered every call of help with grace, for they didn't deserve it. He graciously sent his servants, ready with mercy and salvation, even when the people rebelled, It was an act of grace that he punished them and brought them to a place where they would call on him and him alone again so that he might bring them into his mercy. So that they would come back to him as the only true hope that they had for their future. All this time he has been fulfilling the covenant that they agreed with him at Mount Sinai. If you serve me, I will be your God and you will be my people. And despite their lack of service, he has graciously remained faithful to them, never forsaking them. And Samuel here in his speech is fixing their eyes once again upon the Lord as their king hoping against hope that his words will get through to them, that they will turn and call the Lord King once again, even with Saul now in this picture. 
All they have, all they have been through and all they will ever have is from the Lord. You've committed idolatry again by asking for this king and seeking to replace the one you already had. Now it must be said that Samuel here is not simply hoping for a mood lift from Israel. Oh, that's right. We forgot about God. Thank goodness. Cool. No, Samuel is hoping for much more. He wants them to wake up to the fear of the Lord. Even though they have a king now and their government has changed shape, their relationship to this Lord has not. Their hope for a future rests firmly in that relationship with Yahweh. Verse 14 and 15 make that very clear. Nothing has changed. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and heed his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not heed the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Why does Samuel say all of this? Because as we have already said, Israel has forgotten the Lord. They are already treading down the path of judgment mentioned in verse 15. They have no fear of him. Instead, they have fixed their hope upon the king that they have just made. The king that they called for. Saul has not just, Saul has not just become their king. He has become their idol. They have lifted him beyond the realms of earthly kings and placed him in the position of God instead. Saul's kingship is based on the need to replace the Lord. But Samuel doesn't want them to undo this kingship. That's not what's being called for here. Though not pleased with the reason for wanting a king, God has called and appointed Saul for them. There is no call to undo it. But Samuel needs to make clear to Israel and to Saul for this future kingdom where everyone sits in the rank and the file. Who answers to whom? And what he makes abundantly clear is that everyone, king and people, answer to God. And it's actually more than that. They don't just answer to him. They are his subjects and his people. They are to serve him with their lives, obey him with their actions and fear him as the Lord of all. And in response, he will be with them as their God. However, Samuel doesn't just supply the positive side of that equation. If they go against the Lord and don't fear him, don't serve him, don't listen to him, then he will be against them. That is to say this, God will not be forgotten. He will not play second fiddle to an idol like the king of Israel, 
for his people. He will not remain silent while his people place their hope in life and death on anything else than him. He is a jealous God. He is jealous for his name and he is jealous for his people. If they do not recognise him correctly as their Lord, he will bring them to a place where they do. Samuel's actually using fear here to motivate the people. How would we respond to Samuel and his words if he was saying this to us, if we were Israel? I think if we were being honest, the first thought that goes through our heads, or at least went through my head, is to treat Israel like they are slightly thick-headed. Come on, Israel. Don't you hear the man speaking to you? Repent already. It's not that complicated. He's spelling it out. Fear the Lord, serve and obey. And you're on your way. God will not allow this to happen. He doesn't tolerate being second in your life. For his sake and for your own, repent. Cry out to him. You don't want to end up where he is bringing you back against your wish. End up in his judgment. And maybe the better question put to us is this way. How do we respond weakly, even to the words that we hear? The situation isn't always so different. A word from God through someone called into his ministry to a people that often forget who it is that we're worshipping with our lives. When we are caught up in a place, in placing our hopes on the schemes of our own hearts, on the thoughts of our own minds, when we hope to find rescue and a good life in the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom of God. As easy as it is to look at Israel and wonder why they are not more responsive are responsive to the word of God, aware of their sin or proactive in their faith. We hear a good work, every, a good word every week from the pulpit or daily from the word if we are reading and so often we remain ignorant or obstinate in our sin and it flows off of us without any impact. It's not easy for a man like Samuel to strike the appropriate fear of the Lord into the people with his words. Nor for the people to have an appropriate response to those words, to just fear the Lord. But thankfully, blessedly, Samuel, and more importantly, God is aware of the obstinance of his people. And he doesn't let it remain an issue Samuel sees that his words of reasoning are running like water off of a duck's back. The people just aren't getting it. So on wheat harvest day, the driest day of the year, he prays for thunder and rain. This is not likely to happen. This would not happen. And the moment he finishes prayer, boom. 
thunder rolls across the sky and rain pours down on the driest day of the year. Imagine it like snow in the middle of our January. And all of a sudden, the fear of God that has been beating off of Israel's mind begins to sink in, begins to soak in. God will not be forgotten amongst his people. And the people quake. Pray for us, the people call to Samuel. Pray that God would not kill us for the evil that we have committed. Wow. So often we speak of the fear of the Lord. When we speak of it, we want to step away from this sort of understanding. That there is a knee-shaking, fear and trembling aspect of standing before the Lord as a sinner. Over the last few weeks, I've been asking people what fear of the Lord means. And so often the word that comes up is awe. It's to have an awe of the Lord. I think this is a good answer. But I wonder if we understand what that could really mean. What the scale of this means before the Lord. I wonder if you've, have you ever been to the Adelaide Museum The first time I remember going, I went as a child, but as an adult, it's the first time I remember I was in my early 20s. On the ground floor of the museum, there is that exhibit that is filled with life-size animals from around the world. It's not a zoo, but it's got creatures that the zoo just wouldn't be able to hold. When I was there this this time as an adult, I was awestruck when I saw the moose of all creatures. Up until that moment, I'd always seen mooses, moose eye. Uh, Moose, it's just mace. (laughs) I'd always seen them on TV. I'd always just read of them or interesting information. I don't spend that much time researching moose. Um, in my mind, I always pictured the moose as a cat, the size of a cow or a horse. But here I was standing next to a life-size model of this colossal thing. My head does not come up to its shoulder. They can weigh up to 700 kilos. Not only was I suddenly aware of its size, but I became acutely aware of my own size and wondered how things like this, moose and me, can operate in the same world. How things like this, this big, can live in nature. I was in awe of this. And I kind of liked the feeling. It's also the reason I'd one day love to go in one of those shark cages with great whites. It gives you perspective all of a sudden. I think this is probably the type of awe that we are more familiar with. It's a wonderful feeling. 
Perhaps you have felt it staring at a sunset or being at the base of a, a colossal mountain. But a fake moose or a sunset or a mountain or even a great white is nothing compared to the Lord. The Lord's power overwhelms everything. And we are all answerable to him. Who can evade the Lord? I know how to avoid a stuffed moose. It's tricky, but it can be done. Sunsets come and go. Mountains can be scaled or walked away from, and there are stacks of spaces that are safe from great whites. But where can you go to avoid the Lord? All things are in his power to do with as he wills. I wonder if you've read Psalm 8 before. Two verses, verse 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. One of the amazing and at the same time utterly terrifying things about God is this that He is 100% mindful of human beings. He is acutely aware, aware of you and interested in you. And everything that we do. And this is what Israel has just realized. When the thunder begins to roll and this rain soaks them, they realize that they have acted against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and He cares about it. And He's not happy. The hand of the Lord is against them. And they quickly come to a place of fear in the Lord. Where do you turn when the Lord's hand is against you? Who can save you? Where does the hope of Israel rest now? Is it in the new king? No. Saul is there, he's amongst them, and he is crying out as well. Was it in Samuel? Samuel cannot save them. Not against the God of thunder and rain. So who do you cry out to when all seems lost? Even when the Lord seems to be against you? You cry out to the Lord. All the people said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of demanding a king for ourselves. It is a cry of guilt concerning their latest idol. It is the same plea we heard in Samuel's recounting of their history, a cry only for one hope. That the Lord 
would have mercy on them and spare them. And Samuel's words on behalf of the Lord is a quick response. And it should be noted for how quick it is. Don't be afraid. You have done wickedness. Now live and follow the Lord with all your heart, never turning from him. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because he has pleased, uh, he was pleased to make you his people. Can you believe those words? Don't be afraid. It is so immediate. Samuel says it straight away. But hasn't he just been instructing Israel all this time to have a fear of the Lord? And now that they are afraid, he says, don't be afraid. It's not the Lord that they must no longer fear. It is the destructive end of his judgment. As he has so many times before, the Lord hears the cry of his people and he welcomes them back into his arms with grace and mercy beyond comprehension. In their moment of calling out to him as their, as their only hope, they do all that he has ever asked. Call on him. Just him. And no one else. How does God do this? How does God love these people over and over again? Not just in the mercy that he offers them, but in his consistent shepherding of the people back to him in his judgment. There's a verse in Amazing Grace. In verse, verse 2 that says this. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And grace, my fears, relieved. And this is exactly what is happening here, isn't it? He is gracious in teaching them to fear him. To rely on him and him alone. And to never depart. And he is gracious in relieving their fear of death. But how does he do it? How can he just pardon the sin of a nation? Here, even here, we see the glory of the cross coming to bear upon God's treatment of his people, his dealing with humanity. All the destructive ends of their sin from our perspective are being held back, stored up and saved to be poured out upon Christ on the cross. In this moment, though they are perhaps unaware of it, they have died in Christ's death. And the life they are living, they live in Christ, who, like his Father, loved them and gave himself for them. We can note that this is actually where any talk of Israel's transgression and idolatry ends in the speech. It's almost a sharp ending. Go, you have repented, go and live as you have been commanded to live. 
God doesn't forsake his people, the end. Samuel doesn't speak on it again. It's not dragged on. There is no further lecture, no dirty looks. The Lord has saved them from himself and for himself. And he has turned them back to his people, back into his arms. And they have been forgiven. And now Samuel finalises his farewell speech by telling the people what his new role will be. Though no longer the leader of Israel, he will continue as a prophet. Praying for them and teaching them the ways of the Lord. The life that they now live in him, in Christ. It should be no surprise to us that now Israel has feared the Lord. They are ready to receive instruction in his ways. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this is the first piece of repeated wisdom that Samuel gives to them, gives to Israel in his new role. Fear the Lord, he says. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. And then he has his mic drop. A reminder. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. The present grace that the Lord is giving to them, that Samuel was speaking on, has not diminished his ongoing desire to be the only thing they have in their hearts, their only hope. Grace has not tamed God. It is the means by which he continues to call us back to him. Samuel's speech, the word of God and the revelation of the Lord in power has fixed Israel's eyes upon the Lord. In a great act of grace to an undeserving people, God has snapped their eyes back to him, away from their idols. And my prayer this morning is that he has done the same for us, even in hearing this message, in hearing how he has dealt with Israel. We have known from Israel's repeated history and from our own experience that we are a forgetful people. We are deeply guilty of forgetting the Lord and taking in false hopes and powerless idols. But we have a king that does not cast his people away. He pursues them again and again and again, bringing us back by grace to fear him and in grace relieve the fear of death at his hands by the death death and resurrection of Jesus. Where does your hope rest? in the king of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Lord God, we give thanks for this speech of Samuel's to Israel. 
Lord, that I pray has fixed our eyes upon you also. Lord, to know of your great grace, not just as something that is always filled with kindness and mercy, but but that that kindness and mercy is shown also in the judgment and the harsh response to bring us back to you. You are the fountain of living water. In you is our only hope. We give thanks, Lord, that you have called us your people and that you have not forsaken us when we have forsaken you. But that in your grace you continue to call us back to you. That you are faithful to us. Lord God, I pray this morning... Father, if there are any of us here this morning that are fixing our eyes on something other than you, Lord, we already know that you are at work in that. Even from this passage, we know that you are at work bringing any of us that are in that place back to you. But I pray for our sake that it would be expedited, Lord, that we would swiftly return to you. We give thanks that we can rest in your arms. Lord, that we don't have to be overly concerned with good works, but just fixing our eyes on what you have done and what has happened on that cross in Christ and not be afraid. You are our only hope, Lord. Thank you for keeping it that way and keeping us fixed upon that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.